This is No BS, a series of authentic conversations about the world of work. My name is Dr. Carlin Borosenko. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I work with individuals and organizations all over the world to help them create amazing work experiences. And I'll be honest, in the work I do, I run across my fair share of nonsense. In this series, we are going to call BS on the things that are just completely unnecessary in the workplace and explore how we can do them better. Ready to go? Let's get started. For the next two episodes of No BS, I am delving into, frankly, what is a really touchy subject, which is the dark side of the Me Too movement. What is the experience of men who have been falsely accused? I talked to a couple men over the next two episodes that say they were falsely accused and, and discussed with them how they managed those accusations and what that felt like. Now, I want to be really, really, really crystal clear. I am not making any judgment about the guilt or innocence in these cases. I frankly don't know. I was not there, but I am going to give them a forum to tell their story. In this episode, I was so excited to speak with famed lawyer Alan Dershowitz. Yes, that Alan Dershowitz. And we got a chance to talk about his book, Guilt by Accusation, The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of Me Too. Now, one quick note, the audio is just a little bit janky in this episode. I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. I've done my very best to clean it up, but I promise you I haven't cut out any of the content of what he's saying. I, I think it makes an enormous difference what you're accused of and what the reality is. I think that many men who are falsely accused um, have histories of um, improper conduct or uh, of, uh, of backgrounds that they're, that they're ashamed to have made public. That, I think that's a fairly typical situation, and many of them have to therefore suffer in silence. My case is very different. Um, a, I have nothing to hide. I've never done anything improper sexually. I've never touched a woman to whom I was not married, I'm, or, you know, I'm talking about since I've been, since this episode came up, obviously, when I was dating, that was very different. But um, I've never done anything wrong sexually. Um, I, uh, you know, I once said on television, my, my sex life was perfect, I, by, by which I meant only that, you know, since a relevant period of time, since the day I met Jeffrey Epstein, I've never touched, flirted, done anything improper with anyone. Um, you know, I've been totally, totally faithful to my wife. So I have nothing to hide. Also, this is not a gray area case. I never met um, this woman, never heard of her. She just made up the whole story. It's not, oh yeah, we had sex, but I think it was consensual. She doesn't. That's the typical case. Or yeah, she worked with me, but I didn't think that my joke was offensive or I didn't think my touching her on the shoulder completely made up story. And that puts, you know, puts me in a very different situation from most men who have been falsely accused. In fact, I know of no other case where in the Me Too movement, where a man has been accused by a, um, uh, an accuser who he never met. And there's not an iota of evidence that he ever met her. In fact, we have emails from her admitting she never met me. We have a tape recording from her lawyer in which he says it was impossible for us to have met and that she's wrong, simply wrong. 
We have statements by her to her friends and boyfriend and best friend, best woman friend, saying she never met me. So it's it's an it's it's a remarkable case. And the most amazing thing is that you know if you go on Twitter, I'm called a pedophile, a baby effer. Uh, every possible name you can come up with has been thrown at me, even though there's not a scintilla of evidence that I ever met the person. And that's what's so remarkable about it. Yeah, you start your book off with with the sentence, imagine how you would feel if your husband, father, or son were falsely accused of a heinous sex crime by a woman you never met. And you go on to tell the story of how you learned about these allegations by when a reporter called you to ask about them. Right. How does that feel to be in your it. shoes? Yeah. Well, it, it, in the beginning, we thought it was just a joke. I mean, all my friends who know me know how attached I am to my wife, know that there's no basis for this, know that I'm not the hugger, touch or anything like that. So in the beginning, it was a joke. Um, but then when all the newspapers picked it up and I began to be lumped together with Prince Andrew and Jeffrey Epstein and others, it became very serious. It became particularly serious for my grandchildren, you know, who were in college at the time and really part of the whole Me Too uh, phenomenon. And, and then it's very hard to fight back because if you call a woman a liar, which she is, and I'm going to call her a liar again on the record, will for the rest of my life. Um, if you call a woman a liar, then even if you didn't do it, you're guilty of calling a woman a liar. So there's no way out. Um, if you don't deny it, you're accused, you're, you're thought to be guilty. If you do deny it, you've committed an additional political sin. And so it's a trap. And it feels just horrible. Mm -hmm. uh, and the idea that people believe it uh, is horrible. I've had, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, I used to speak at the 92nd Street Y in New York every year, sometimes twice a year. I was the most frequent speaker in their history, second only to Elie Wiesel. And this past year, they refused to allow me to speak, um, even though they said it was clear I was innocent. Just because being accused is enough. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Megan Kelly, Megan, Megan, well, not Kelly, Megan, um, uh, the, the daughter of the senator, Senator McCain. McCain. Me yep. Megan McCain said I shouldn't be allowed on television because I was accused. Accused. So the act, that's why I wrote the book with the title, Guilt by Accusation. If you're accused, you're guilty. And it's a terrible feeling. Uh, you know, people look at me funny. Uh, I had a person, this was recent, a year or so ago, I was, I was walking down the street and, and a woman recognized me and she was with her like 10 year old child and she pulled the child away. Wow. You know, as if, oh my God, this guy is going to touch her. Um, you know, and, you know, I've been called a pedophile, even though the woman who accused me was, um, over 18 at the time. And of course I never met her, so it doesn't matter. But even, even, I mean, even the accusation was not pedophilia. It was something else, obviously, but you know, and, and it's been used to attack me, uh, politically, you know, in my con, when I make constitutional arguments and against impeachment, the answer on Twitter is, yeah, but you know, looking at me as a sex offender. So it's, it's my whole life when I have, when a client calls me, I have to immediately say, before you hire me, you have to know I've been accused. It's false, but I've been accused. I had that conversation with President Trump 
Wow. And he asked me to defend him. I said, Mr. President, you have to know I've been accused. He said, oh, yeah, I'm fully aware of it. I know, and I know you didn't do it. I want you to be my lawyer. But uh, you, know, you have to tell every client and every person. It's just you know required by ethics that you disclose that. Mm-hmm. Now, what I think is so interesting about your case is this has been going on for a long time. So it actually spans before the Me Too movement and after the Me Too movement. Was there a noticeable difference to you? Oh, there's no question. Before the Me Too movement, I had one. It had gone away. Remember, I had this admission. I had the tapes. I had the recording. I had the emails. I had a, a full investigation by the former head of the FBI who said it was false. I had I had judge had struck it. The lawyers had withdrawn it. It was over. It was completely over. And then the Me Too movement came, and suddenly it was resurrected. No new evidence. All the new evidence was in my favor. Not a single witness, not a single uh, photograph. I said on day one, the day I was accused, I went to the media and I said, there will be no photographs, there will be no witnesses, because it didn't happen. And then when the New York Times said, we have a photograph, we don't think it's you, but this guy Kessler has been trying to sell, you know, extort people by selling photographs. Um, My wife was there with me. I said, show it to my wife. I don't even have to see it because there can't be a picture of me having sex with anybody other than my wife because I didn't. So if there is a picture, it's either a mock-up or it's not me. I didn't even have to see it. But, you know, my wife showed it to me and laughed, you know, and said, God, I never looked like that. Um, but, you know, that that's that's the way it is. You know, for me, it's, it's, it's not as uncomfortable it would be for some other people because, as I said, I have nothing to hide. Yeah. So uh, now, yeah. now we're in litigation. And this has cost me well over a million dollars in legal fees. My insurance went up from about $10,000 a year to $170,000 a year as a result of this false accusation. It's taken a toll on my health, my physical health, and there's nowhere to go. There should be a Me Too, there should be a Me Too court. What I have suggested is that the Me Too movement set up a court. Three judges, former judges, women, men, anything you want, former justices, judges, people beyond reproach, and that anybody who is accused falsely can go to that court and have a hearing and let the court render one of three decisions, uh, totally guilty, totally innocent, or inconclusive. Uh, But there's nowhere to go because, you know, the trick is they accuse you in court papers so you can't sue them. And then when you deny it, they can sue you. So it's become a money-making proposition. The woman who accused me has made more than a million dollars in lawsuits. Um, so you're not you're not you know a stranger to controversy at all. You've been pretty controversial throughout your whole career, but this seems to be impacting you a little bit differently with how people are looking at you around this. Of course, it's completely different. I welcome controversy about my ideas. I love having debates and controversy about my ideas. But having controversy about whether I'm a sex offender? No, that's Mm -hmm. not uh, what I bargained for in my life. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I've taught my students for years, if you're going to be controversial, you have to stay away from any accusations. I tell them, if you're going to be controversial, pay more taxes than you owe, which I always do. Uh, Don't get close to anything truly impermissible, which has been the way I've handled my life. Um, 
but it doesn't help. I mean, even though I've done nothing, even to come close to any lines, here I stand falsely accused. Everybody who's read my book, by the way, everybody who's read my book now knows I'm innocent. That's why I wrote the book. People told me not to write the book because it'll just bring more attention to it. I'm happy to bring more attention to it as long as people read the book and understand what the facts are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your book clearly lays out a lot of pretty compelling evidence. I think, you know, the, one of the questions I had was, um, you've done all sorts of interviews about this, and you specifically went on The View and, and talked with Meghan McCain and others about this. They didn't give you any opportunity, though, to kind of present your evidence. What What does that feel like to be in that position where it kind of seems like they've all assumed your guilt? Yeah, I mean, that's what happens. They either assume your guilt or they assume that you shouldn't be asserting your innocence. I had somebody say to me in a public event, I know you're innocent, but why don't you just fall on your sword in order to help the Me Too movement? I said, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm not going to do that. I support the Me Too movement when it's right, um, when there are real accusations, but I'm not going to become a sacrificial lamb to the to the abuses of the movement, um, you know, I think the woman who accused me should go to prison. She's committed multiple perjury and she's done it for money and she's done it with the assistance of her lawyers. And, um, you know, I'm countersuing her. I'm going to try to take all of her money away from her and, and try to get the prosecutors to open up an investigation of her and me. You know, I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal. You should look at it if you have a chance. It's called, I want the FBI to investigate me, because that was the only way to deal with it. I called for an FBI investigation. I went to the FBI. I went to the U.S. attorney. I went to the district attorney and pleaded with them to open an investigation of me, because I want to be vindicated. They wouldn't do it. What advice do you have for men who find themselves in a position like this, but don't necessarily have the resources you have? It depends on what they've done. You can't give general advice. You know, if you're a philanderer and, you know, you've um, deviated you know, from if you've if you've committed sexual sins, um, you can't do this because they'll be they'll be uncovered. But you're right. If you don't have the resources, it's very, very hard to fight back. But by the way, if you have the resources, you're more of a target. I think, you know, one of the quotes that really struck me in your book was some zealots who push the movement and causes are so convinced of their righteousness that they become intolerant of dissent, due process, and other cumbersome barriers to their truth with a capital T, a truth of which they are absolutely certain. How do we bring people back from this type of zealotry and start to get them to look at these situations with a more open mind? Well, you know, generally movements have pendulum swings and the pendulum is now swung in the direction of everybody's guilty and don't you dare assert your innocence. Uh, I think the pendulum will be moving back uh, toward the center where the presumption of innocence still prevails, where you're innocent until proven guilty. Today, you're guilty until proven innocent. In my case, it's so extreme. I've proven my innocence and that's not enough. I don't even need a presumption of innocence. I've established my innocence clearly, and that's yet not enough. So what's next for you in regards to this case and trying to, to put everything on the record in, in a more correct way? Lawsuits. I can't wait to um, depose um, my perjuring accuser. 
and confront her with the fact that she falsely accused Al Gore and Tipper Gore of being on Jeffrey Epstein's island, that she falsely accused Bill Clinton of being on the island. He never was there. They were never there. That she claimed she was 14 when she met Epstein. She was 17. That she claimed she met Queen Elizabeth. That she claimed she saw um, Stephen Hawking in an orgy. Uh, you know, I want to confront her with all this. Uh, and, um, and then confront her with her emails. Why did she, in her emails, essentially acknowledge that she never met me? Did she just suddenly remember they had se- that she had sex with me seven times in exotic places that I never was at during the relevant time period? You know, I think once she's under oath and being examined, her, her case will collapse completely. And I hear no question on cross-examination. How do you think you being involved with the defense of President Trump has impacted how people perceive this case? I think people don't like my uh, involvement with Trump. You know, I'm, the Trump thing, I'm just, I just presented the constitutional argument. I'm not there today making closing arguments. I'm not part of the defense team in terms of strategy or witnesses or facts. I was just asked to present a constitutional argument, which I did, but still. People associate me with Trump, who I didn't vote for, I voted against. But nonetheless, uh, my emails, many of them that attack me on Trump, attack me on, on this as well. So it combined, it exacerbates. And I knew this was going to happen. I went in with my eyes open. But it's even more extreme than I thought. So I, I just have one more question. And really, I'm, I'm interested in the very human impact on you and your family, if you don't mind me delving into that area. Please, no, please. It's been terrible. It's been terrible. Um, nobody who knows me believes it. None of our personal friends, even those who are re- really upset with me for the Trump thing, nobody who knows me believes it because they know who I am. They know I'm not a toucher. Of, you know, I'm not any, I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, a player. Um, everybody knows that, but still, it uh, it's a terrible impact on on my grandkids who are in you know in in school where people believe anything that's said uh, on my uh, children. Um, it's it's had a terrible impact on us. Um, it's uh, you know I'm a victim, and nobody wants to treat me as a victim. I'm a victim of willful, deliberate, malicious. False accusation, extortion, perjury. I'm a victim of a crime, of crimes. And nobody wants to treat me that way. They want to treat me as a perpetrator. Does it feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel for you? If I live long enough, I'm 81 years old. I'm completely (laughs) confident that if I remain alive and healthy, uh, I will be declared victorious, as I once already was previously. Mm -hmm. And the big victory is if she goes to prison. Okay. Okay. What what emotional relief would that give you if she went to prison? It would give me enormous relief to know that justice was done. Um, oh, the the Bible says that shalt not be false witness. And the punishment for bearing false witness in the Bible was to get the punishment that the person you bore false witness against would have gotten, and that's what I want for her. I want her to suffer uh, from what I would have suffered from had she been telling the truth, which, which she is not. So I think justice is a two-way street. Uh, the Bible says justice, justice must you pursue. They mentioned justice twice. I end the book with that quote. 
And I think that means justice, not only for me, but for my false accuser. She has to be treated justly, which means going to prison. Okay. I mean, it wasn't an accident. I would never send anybody to prison for saying, oh, I think it was non-consensual when it might have been consensual. But to sit down with her lawyers and plot to falsely accuse me for money is a very serious crime. And that's what she did. I want to send my heartfelt thanks to Alan for taking the time to speak with me. Listen, I didn't really know what to think coming into this chat, but I have to tell you, I really enjoyed his book. So I recommend that if you're interested in learning more about Alan's side of the story, pick up his book. Again, that's Guilt by Accusation, The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Me Too Era. Now, in part two of this little series, I talked to Mike Tunison, who's much more of an average guy. Like, Alan Dershowitz is a big deal. He has lots of resources. He has lots of visibility. He can fight these things a lot easier. But Mike Tunison is a freelance writer that got caught up in the Me Too movement when his name was added to a Google Doc by someone who he doesn't even know who it is. So in the next episode, we're going to talk to Mike, learn more about his side of the story.